Church, if you will take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue on in our series. And that will be on page uh, 1029 in the Pew Bible if you're using that this morning. We'll be starting in verse 18. And finishing out the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be a church of great discernment, using it. Lord, and as we see false teaching and unrighteousness, Lord, that we would not just let it pass before our eyes, particularly here in our own congregation, Lord, that we would address it, Lord, with a spirit of gentleness and humility, lest we, through our pride, fall. We pray now for our brother as he comes to lead us, Lord, that you would speak through him into our hearts, that we may be changed, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. I will add my good morning. It is good to be back. Uh, You know, several years ago, there was a trend in Christian publishing where people were writing stories of having been to heaven and back. 
And uh, until I learned more about them, I just had assumed they had been to Tennessee. And, <clears throat> yeah. and so uh, it was good to, to go home and to see so much of our family. Um, and it is good to be back. One of the things that we aim at, in fact, when I say one of the, I intend to say the primary thing that we aim at as a church is to glorify God. Everything else may come and go, but we aim to glorify God. And we have expressed that we aim to glorify God in four particular ways, just to help us stay on the same page, to exalt Jesus in passionate worship, to equip Christians for life and service, to encourage one another in meaningful fellowship, and to engage the world with the gospel. These are the four paths, if you will, that we simultaneously seek to walk as we glorify God. They hang uh, up uh, on signs out in our uh, foyer. We take time at, a few, at least three times in the last few years to just preach through those ideas as they are found in the Scripture. And what's coming up in our church's life reflects our commitment to do that. One of the things that hinders encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, can I just tell you the most basic thing that hinders our meaningful fellowship, one of the most basic things that hinders our capacity to uh, encourage one another, it is geographical distance. We live in the suburbs, right? We live in the burbs and we go to our places and we have our fences and we're separated from one another and the closest we get to contact is typically Facebook. But the reality is, is that biblical encouragement, meaningful fellowship with one another comes as we are geographically closer to one another, which is why we take time every August to just remind ourselves that we ought to be hospitable with one another. And it is why in the months to come that we are going to re- do the way that we approach this room. Because not, we don't just need to be geographically closer to one another, just to be geographically closer to one another so that we can smell one another or anything like that. We need to be geographically closer to one another because the fact remains that you and I are more likely to encourage someone that we're close to. And so what are we going to do to do this? Well, uh, beginning later this spring. Now, the ultimate aim uh, there, if you were to look closely enough at many of these pews, you will find that they are hole-ridden and wearing out, and the carpet is uh, about the same. So, our, me, uh, the, what we will be doing, if you are in January's members meeting, none of this will be new to you, uh, but we said that we are going to redo this room in such a way that there will be chairs here instead of pews, not because chairs are inherently better than pews, quite frankly because chairs are less expensive than pews, and quite frankly because chairs are less expensive than fixing the existing pews that we have. So that's what we are doing here, and we'll redo the floor while we have, that's the time to do it, is when you have the pews out. Uh, but we also want to intentionally move geographically closer to one another, and so, uh, it is not for any other reason than to facilitate encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship and engaging the world with the gospel. 
Do you know if you sit way over here and you say, oh, I've never seen that person way over there before, most likely, Adam, you are not going to make a beeline to them. That's not about your character. That's just mean there's about 400, you know, there's a bunch of people between you and them. You just have to be a fullback and bowl over them. But if you're sitting there and they're sitting there, then it's easier facilitated because during the greeting time you will have done it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin later this spring by removing uh, what are now extremely old pews from uh, the balcony to move us all onto the floor. That's the first geographical shift. Then when we geographically shift again, it will be that there probably won't be, I, I haven't measured yet, so uh, the building and grounds guys will help us figure this out, but probably there won't be these outside sections to begin with. We'll have this and we'll have, five, and, and we'll have the capacity to have 500 people in these four sections. Now you say, now that sounds ridiculous. Because what if we start growing? What if, we, what if every person in here reaches someone for Christ and they come and they join this church and they begin to grow and we fill up every single one of those chairs? Won't you be sorry that we took all of the other places to sit out? No. Ah, <laughs> oh, I know what we'll do. We'll start a second service and then at some point we'll finance to redo this thing, right? No. Do you know what we'll do? We'll say, um, about 50 of you, we need to plant another church. That's what we need to do. Do you know, in, in doing counseling with the community, do you know that one of, and even in doing our membership class, do you know one of the saddest stories that I hear over and over and over and over and over again is the difficulty that people have finding a church that is committed to the scripture and to expositional preaching and to biblical counseling and to missions and not because we're perfect. I mean, I, I can send them to about seven different churches. That's all across the south side, depending on where they live. But brothers and sisters, we need more faithful churches. We need more faithful churches. And the idea that everybody's just going to flock to a mega church does not help. Do you know what also uh, it increases our capacity to encourage one another in meaningful fellowship to have a reasonable number of people in the room. We can all do it in one little circle, but I'm just telling you, we need to do this so that we grow spiritually. So we position ourselves in such a way that when we reach 500, we're not just patting ourselves on the back about how many people are in this room. What we're saying is, there are too many people in this room. We need some of these people to be a light for the Lord Jesus Christ preaching the gospel in another part of the south side of Indianapolis. That's what we need. Because there is, statistically, for whatever reason, church plants and newer churches and smaller churches have a way, way of reaching people that existing churches that have been around for decades and decades. It just The statistics bear out that they just have a, a better go of it. We need to be a church planting church. That's why our missions conference is going to be themed around church planting because we need to be thinking about this more. All right? So, we want to encourage one another in meaningful fellowship, which means we need to be closer to one another. We want to engage the world with the gospel. Do you know how to do that with someone else? You get geographically closer to them. You don't shout at them from across the room. Unless you're the preacher. Which reminds me, we need to get to the text. All right? Now, I'll remind you again, I'll send out another email. This is not about, the other thing that's really great, I will just tell you from being in conferences where you're packed in pews together, 
is that the encouragement one receives in singing when you are close to one another is amazing. I think some of the only people who really hear what we sound like as a church family singing are us up here. And I am encouraged week after week after week by the way God has graciously grown us in singing. And I think God will encourage you as well when we make those changes. If you have any questions, I'll be on sabbatical, so ask one of the other elders. Uh, <laughs> continuing our study in the churches, uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation. And as I thought about this church, and I thought about what it is that Jesus says to them. I thought of actually about reality TV and the fact that reality TV is basically not based in reality at all. When was the last time you were trapped on an island with 15 strangers, you played large-scale games, and you voted each other out, putting out their, you know, their torch? When was the last time, look, can I just tell you that in high school, my dating experience was not that 30 beautiful girls were all pining to date me, all right? This is just not reality. But some of them do come closer to reality. There's a, there's a show called What Would You Do? And this show creates uh, fictional and yet really uncomfortable situations, basically to see who will intervene? So there's things like bad parenting, there's bullying, there are people harassing their waitress, uh, there are, there's law-breaking, there's racial discrimination, there's all kinds of things going on, and it's all set up to see what it takes for some onlooker to intervene. How much will people tolerate before they say something? Have you ever intervened in an uncomfortable situation? Ever asked a raging stranger if he's okay? Even though you know he's not, but you're hoping the question just cools the temperature just a little bit? Well, that's with strangers. What about with family and friends? What about with Christian brothers and sisters? What do you do when you see a friend sin? In sin? What do you do when you hear your friend contradicting the truth of the Bible? Do you speak? Do you stay silent? Do you think, quite frankly, it's none of your business? The Holy Spirit will deal with them on, their, on his own. So I need not say anything. Well, dear friends, the New Testament teaches us that as Christians, we are responsible for one another. We must teach one another, encourage one another, telling one another to keep going in the right direction. We are to admonish one another, which means that we are to warn one another about going in the wrong direction. We're to rebuke the one who is in sin. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit does take care of errors in life and in doctrine, but do you know how he primarily does it? Through the lips of other Christians, saying something. So while it's my business to watch over my life and my doctrine carefully, 
It's also in many respects your business because we're family, because we're charged with caring for one another. And if we are to tolerate sin, we dishonor the Lord and we fail to love one another. That's why we practice church discipline in our congregation, by the way. In love, we pursue and rebuke the one who is in sin in hopes of repentance. And if there is none, we keep pursuing. And if our pursuit is continually and finally refused, we must, with tears, remove that person from church membership. It is hard I just told our membership class this morning that it has never been without audible sobs and visible tears that we have carried out that last step of church discipline. It is difficult, but the thing that we cannot do is tolerate it. Indeed, tolerating the intolerable is a problem in many churches today. Under the false idea of what it means to be gracious or from fear of man, tolerance of sin and false doctrine takes root, and it has taken root in the church in Thyatira. Thyatira is the least important of all these cities in Revelation 2 and 3. It's not a strategic military outpost. Uh, it doesn't have, like uh, in other cities, like in Smyrna, there was an Acropolis built on, a, on an elevated hill so that if armies attacked, you could go up and be fortified and protected. This is, this is lowland. This is the banks of the Lycus River. And if, if, if invaders are coming, the best the troops in Thyatira can do is slow them down before they get to an important city. But it is a place of great industry. There are wool workers, there are leather workers, there are tanners, there are potters, there are bakers, there are bronze smiths, there are dyers of cloth. Now, we don't know how this church actually got started. If we were going to be speculatory, which is all we could do, we could say maybe it's in connection with Paul's ministry. I mean, likely it somehow sprung out of Paul's ministry around Asia Minor. But you remember when Paul in Acts 16 is in Philippi and he's uh, coming in and he runs into a woman originally from Thyatira. And she's a seller of purple, purple cloth, Lydia. And the Lord opens her eyes and opens her heart to hear the gospel, to receive it, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That may have been a way that the door was opened into Thyatira. I mean, we don't know how it started, but here's what we know. Things have gone terribly wrong now. Sinful living, false teaching infects the congregation. But did you notice? Did you notice who Jesus addresses? He speaks about Jezebel. We'll get to her. He speaks about the ones following in her footsteps. He takes issue with the ones tolerating it. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. That's the problem Jesus addresses. So I take it to be that the main idea is that no church should tolerate what Jesus won't tolerate. No church should tolerate what Jesus won't tolerate. And so as we come to this text, we see, first of all, uh, the tolerant church. We see a tolerant church. Church. Now, it's not all bad in Thyatira, all right? 
He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience, and that your latter works exceed the first. So these aren't things that are just present in Thyatira. They are somehow growing there, even at the same time that these other things are being tolerated. It's like these people who are loving and serving and all these things. They're living in their own world and like they're ignoring part of the congregation. But in that sense, you're growing. I mean, if you just think about what, he, what Jesus commends here, love, faith, service, patient endurance, don't you want to be part of that church? Don't you? Don't you want to be part? Don't you want Great Road Baptist Church to be a place of love and faith and service and patient endurance? And not only that, but it's but the works are exceeding those that we had at first, that we're growing in all those. Don't you want that? It's almost like we're in the polar opposite church of Ephesus, isn't it? The, Ephesus, what was happening is doctrine, 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 truth, 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 and ignoring and setting aside and abandoning love. And here we have love, 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 and as we'll see, truth has gone out the window. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You're tolerant. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, I say that word. It's a loaded word in our society, isn't it? Tolerance? Isn't that a loaded word? I mean, you want to have an interesting conversation at work, bring up tolerance. Those who consider themselves tolerant wear it as a badge of honor, and if one is labeled intolerant, it is stitched on the front of your sweater like a scarlet letter of shame. And many churches buy into this. They follow in Thyatira's footsteps, tolerating the intolerable. Now, to be clear, within the life of the church, I want to be careful in saying this, but that there is a kind of tolerance that we should see. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul talks about how the weak ought to, the strong ought to bear with the weak, that we ought to bear with weaknesses. If we call that tolerance, okay. That's not what's happening in Thyatira. But there is a sense in which the strong ought to not to be pounding on the weak, and the weak ought not to be pointing their fingers at the strong when it comes to matters of conscience and those kinds of things. But that's not what's happening in Thyatira. This church isn't tolerating weakness. It's tolerating sinfulness. It's tolerating false teaching from an influential woman who's dragging people away from faithfulness to God. That's why she's labeled Jezebel, by the way. It's interesting if you read the account, I think it's 1 Kings 16, uh, when, when Ahab first ascends to the throne, uh, he said he's, he's evil, uh, he doesn't do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, uh, he leads the people in the sins of Jeroboam. And then basically the text says, as if that weren't enough, he married Jezebel. And she led everybody into worship of Baal. Yes, yes, many other kings have done this whole walk in the way of Jeroboam, but this guy married Jezebel. And she drags him and the nation along with him into sin, not dragging against their will, but she leads the charge like a pied piper playing dissonant notes. 
But Jesus will not tolerate her. Jesus will not tolerate her teaching. Jesus will not tolerate the influence she's having over others to bring them to sin. And he won't tolerate those who are blindly following her. Why? Because it's spiritual adultery. Look at verse 21. This is what he says of her. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. Now, that, that adultery is not literal adultery. That is, all of these people who are following her are committing spiritual adultery. They are turning their backs on the Lord Jesus, and they are chasing after Jezebel. This is how idolatry was spoken of in the Old Testament as adultery. You see, to work in Thyatira, to be a wool worker, to be a leather worker, to do any of these things, you belong to a trade guild, which is similar to labor unions today. You couldn't operate unless you were part of one. And these guilds would hold feasts. But these feasts were not like the Chamber of Commerce dinner where a bunch of people get together and they have a meal and they talk shop. These feasts were meant to honor the gods that were worshipped there. So in Thyatira, it would be gods like Apollo or Tyremnos. But these feasts also included lewd, crass, unmentionable sexual immorality. And this woman, Jezebel, seems to have people convinced this is okay. Is that hard to believe? Is that hard to believe that someone could convince a Christian that it's okay to do those kinds of things? Now, we don't know how she convinced him, but what, what if she just said, your disobedience doesn't matter. God is forgiving. He will forgive you for this. What if she fell into the dualism of the day and said, you know what, Christianity is really about the spirit. It's not so much about what you do in the body. Or what if she just said, God doesn't want you to lose your job, does he? You have to go along with this if you're going to keep your job. It actually doesn't matter how it was justified, dear friends. Do you know why? Because there is no justification for sin and idolatry. There is no justification, not for the Christian. Somehow she had convinced them that her teaching that helped them to compromise here, that helped them to walk in the way of the world, that somehow this was a deeper way of understanding God, and yet verse 24 says, no, 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 these are the deep things of Satan. This is the deep kind of deception here. To think I can just do whatever I please, and I can quote Romans 5 and just say, hey, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, so it doesn't matter. This is why it's so important you just keep reading your Bible. Because Romans 6 says, well, should we just go on in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. How can you who are dead to sin still live in it? 
Paul's argument is actually the exact opposite. Because grace abounds, we ought not to walk in sin. That's a deep thing of Satan. When you become convinced that you can just keep doing what you're doing, when you can just keep sinning the way you're sinning because, hey, grace covers it all. When you start singing along that uh, there'll be days I lose the battle, grace says it doesn't matter. Well, that's wrong. It's wrong. Said it before, just come sit in the counseling room and see the pieces that sin has left behind of people's lives, and then tell me it doesn't matter. You won't be able to do it. And the church is tolerating it. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean that this is being done in some secret corner. They know what's going on. They know the false teaching. They know what happens at the feast. They know their brothers and sisters are deceived. They know that they're going there and they just let it happen. This word tolerate essentially means to leave someone alone. In other places in the New Testament, it means to allow or to permit. Tolerance is tacit permission, brothers and sisters. It is saying, that's all right, without saying anything. That's Jesus' problem with this church. We know that because what he will command them to do, the only command that there is, is going to tag on to this. And we'll see that in a bit. The tolerant church. But the tolerant church is receiving this letter, secondly, from the intolerant Savior. Jesus' response to Jezebel and her followers is vastly different than the church's. The church leaves her alone. Jesus will not. The church gives silent permission. Jesus does not. So, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. No confusion there, is there? Can you walk out of those three verses thinking... Jesus might be all right with this. You can't. He's not going to tolerate it. He'll send sickness. He'll send suffering. He will even send death. It's not the only time in the New Testament that sin is met with physical death. One only needs to go to Acts chapter 5 and think of Ananias and Sapphira or the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 that they are, are, some are getting sick and dying because of their sin. Now we shouldn't be confused here. This doesn't mean that all sickness, all suffering, all death is a direct result of sin. But it is, dear friends, 
I say this cautiously. I say this, I think, truthfully. It is a reminder that it can be. It can be. Why would God bring sickness? Why, why would God bring suffering? Why would God even bring death in, in, in response to sin? Well, he'll do it and he does it as a tangible reminder that sin brings pain. Sin disrupts. Sin corrupts. Sin corrodes. Sin kills. And so, you may be forgiven by God, but you have to go to jail. You may repent of your drunkenness, but your drunkenness has so affected your mental state that it'll never be the same again. And on and on the examples could go. Now, as Christians, we need to beware of trying to figure out whether this suffering or sickness or is a result of sin. I mean, that's clear in God's mind, but quite frankly, it is almost never clear in ours. So we don't need to go around beating ourselves up if we're sick because I'm trying to find the sin. It surely shouldn't be off the table. I've suffered for seven and a half years with what is now being called RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. That is the latest diagnosis. And it causes all manner of problems for me. And as I sat with the elders in January and I talked about this, I told them that one of the things that I've been trying to do is examine my own life for sin. It's not off the table. It can't be off the table. But it shouldn't just be the go-to hammer. We're just going to hammer anything that we find with the, oh, yep, I sinned, so that's why this is happening. Oh, my business took a downturn. I must have sinned. God, you know, God's teaching me a lesson, these kinds of things. Well, God is teaching you a lesson, but it's not necessarily in response to some particular sin. What we have to do instead is to know that whether the, sin or sick, whether the sickness or suffering is a direct result of sin or not, we are to respond to it by glorifying God and seeking to become more like Jesus Christ, which does mean to repent of any known sin, because sickness and suffering, whether it's the result of sin or not, will squeeze in such a way that the sin will come out, and my impatience will come out. And my selfishness will come out. And my determination that what I think life ought to be like will come out. And God will call us to repent of it. Here's here's something that's really striking in the midst of this. I mean, if you you just read it, you see sickbed, great tribulation, death. You don't want to miss this. That though he is intolerant of what is going on, Jesus didn't act immediately. He's not waiting for the first sign of error so that he can zap people. He's been patient. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Even this false teacher, I gave her time to repent. Verse 24, or 22, sorry. I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Isn't that amazing? Jezebel could have repented. She refused. Yet it's not too late for these Christians. And friends, even now, can I just tell you that even now, with you, right where you are, 
Jesus is patient. It is possible that for some of us in this room, Jesus is holding back some kind of temporal judgment in patience because we need to repent. But if we don't, he may not hold it back any longer. And we may suffer for whatever it is we are continuing to do. Because God will, go to, God will stop at no length in order to make us more like, the, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not stop. Because more important than not experiencing sickness, more important than escaping suffering, more important than putting death way out in the future where I don't ever have to think about it, is that you and I are committed to becoming like Jesus. That needs to be primary in our minds because that is primary in the mind of God. But he will act. He will throw her on the sickbed. He will throw into great tribulation unless there's repentance. I will strike her dead. And then Jesus says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus has the power and the authority to do exactly what he says. Verse 23 is basically a combined quote of several texts in the book of Ezekiel, and one in particular in Jeremiah. In the book of Ezekiel, over and over and over again, God says he's going to bring judgment, bring judgment, bring judgment, bring judgment. And, and uh, this time through Ezekiel, I've been double underlining every time that this phrase comes up. And you will know that I am the Lord. And you will know that I am the Lord. And you will know that I am the Lord. When judgment comes, you will know that I am the Lord. And then in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Yahweh searches the heart. Yahweh searches the mind. Yahweh gives every man according to their deeds. The reason why Jesus has the power and authority to do this is because he says, I am he. You will know that I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. I'm the one who gives everyone according to their ways. Jesus has the authority because he is the eternal God in the flesh, now crucified, resurrected, risen, reigning, coming again. But this same Jesus who will not tolerate sin, who punishes sin, came into the world to take our sin. Jesus didn't first come. If you're new to the Christian faith, Jesus did not first come saying, I'm not going to tolerate you. In fact, Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. 
The one who is risen and reigning and coming again and, ju- and will judge the living and the dead is the one who first took the judgment for all those who were dead in their trespasses so that they might be made alive in him. That's why he holds the keys. He took our punishment. We deserve more than sickness. We deserve more than suffering. We deserve more than the end of this physical life. We deserve eternity in conscious torment in hell. If the worst that happens is that you and I suffer in this life because of our sin, praise the Lord. If my life is cut short because of my sin, if that's what happens, not even, not even death can, can, can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He came into this cursed world to bring God's blessing, to take the curse for us. He came to a world that was plagued by the stench of death so that we could receive the sweet aroma of eternal life. And having died from the, for us on the cross, he was raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. And all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, friend, death won't hold you either. Not in the end. Jesus will. And just as Jesus is patient with these Christians in Revelation 2, He is patient with you if you are not a Christian right now. Every breath the non-Christian takes is a gift of patience from the Lord. Patience from the Lord. The reality is is that there will come a day when it will be too late. But it isn't here yet. If you would repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will save you. You'll be forgiven and made right with God. And, every, and then all of a sudden, you'll echo what Paul says, that, that, that we experience light and momentary affliction in this life, but it's not to be compared with the glory to come. Why wouldn't you want that? Any member of this church would love to talk to you about that. I would love to talk to you about that after this service. So the tolerant church, the intolerant Savior, and finally the call to intolerance. To those who haven't been deceived by Jezebel, who aren't following in her footsteps, Jesus essentially says, stop tolerating the intolerable. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have 
until I come. He rebukes them back in verse 20, and now he calls them to do something different than what they have been doing in verse 25. So holding fast must, in essence, not just mean that I go off into my private corner and I'm never going to talk to Jezebel and I'm never going to go to those guild feasts. It does mean that. It does mean I will not listen to her teaching. It does mean I will not go to those guild feasts. I will not do anything that, every, that is known to be the honoring of false gods. I will not do it. I will not participate in the sexual immorality. I simply won't do it. But that's not all he's calling them to do because the problem wasn't that these people were doing it. The problem was that these people were tolerating it. And so by holding fast, Jesus is saying, stop tolerating. Stop looking the other way as if it's not going on. Stop leaving them be. It doesn't honor Jesus and it doesn't help them. They must silence Jezebel. They must remove any platform she has and just remove her and her obstinate teaching from the church altogether. They must faithfully exercise church discipline so that the unrepentant ones will be removed if they will not repent. If Jesus will strike them dead unless they repent, certainly the church ought to do something that indicates this is a real problem. And that's why God has given us church discipline. Jesus calls them to do, in fact, what Paul calls churches to do. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man living in heinous sin, a type of sin that that the ESV translates as, it's not even tolerated among the pagans. But the Corinthians are letting it go. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And it's no different when it comes to doctrine. In Galatians 1, Paul makes it clear that the one twisting the gospel, that person is accursed in God's eyes and there is no place for them in the church. He tells Titus that the doctrinally divisive person has no place. He says, after warning them once and twice, you have nothing more to do with them. They're self-condemned. Their own... Errors are condemning them. You see, it's not enough for Christians in Thyatira. And quite frankly, it's not enough for Christians at Gray Road Baptist Church in Indianapolis to be concerned solely with themselves. As long as I don't do that. As long as I don't teach that. We are to be concerned for the purity of the church's doctrine and the purity of the church's people because both bring glory to Jesus. And if we tolerate deviance in either place, Jesus is dishonored. We cannot look the other way when sin is among us. We cannot just simply plug our ears and refuse to listen when false teaching arises. And not only does it dishonor Jesus, it's just flat out unloving, isn't it? To tolerate sin, sin, to tolerate those things that separate us from God, sin, lies, false teaching, 
Tolerance is not an expression of love. It's not a, can we just all, can we just all get along? Can we just all get along? I mean, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. You think your thing, I'll think my thing. We'll just kind of hang out together. And then uh, at the end, we'll go our separate ways. And uh, you, you say the word sin, but I'm going to think it's this and you think it's that. Isn't that okay? No, it's not okay. It's not loving to just say, hey, think whatever you want about the Bible teaching this morning. You just take it any old way you want. That is not loving. That is not gracious. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you don't even understand the Bible because the Bible points to me. He doesn't say, well, that's an interesting idea. Let's get together for coffee and talk about it. This is why Timothy is left in Ephesus, isn't it? To stop the mouths of those who are saying such things. To make sure that those who are in leadership are the proper leaders. To make sure that widows are taken care of. To make sure that any other doctrine that arises is squandered immediately. And that's what he's calling the church in Thyatira to do. That's what he calls us to do. And Jesus says he will reward us if we do it. If we repent of tolerance and hold fast, verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as the, when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give them the morning star. Just as the work of Jesus is rewarded by the Father. The faithful work of His people will be rewarded by Christ. He says we will reign with Christ. Isn't that fascinating? That's incomprehensible, really. That... Jesus' reign is final and absolute. This language here points back to Psalm 2. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Jesus says we will reign with him. Revelation 11 says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and we shall reign with him. Second Timothy says if we endure in this life... We shall reign with him. Revelation 19 says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And here he's saying we will reign with him. The victory of Christ over all of his enemies, all of God's enemies, will be ours and we shall reign with him. How glorious. And as if that weren't enough, he goes on in verse 28 to say, I will give them the morning star. What does that mean? Well, in Revelation 22, Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star. So Jesus is promising us himself. What a promise! Did you know that that's better than streets of gold? Did you know that that's better than a pain-free existence? Do you know how I know that? 
Because right now, Jesus is better than that. In every sorrow, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. More than any comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Our souls declaring, Jesus is better. And our song eternal will be that Jesus is better. Nothing will outshine the bright and morning star in our hearts. Right now, we have him in full, but we see in a mirror dimly, don't we? Then we will see face to face. Now we see in part, and then we will see in whole. What does this add up to? It adds up to the fact that no church should tolerate what Jesus won't tolerate. The tolerant church must repent of its tolerance. Listen to the intolerant Savior who is patient and heed the call to intolerance. Is it hard to hold fast? Yes. Is it hard to wear the scarlet letter of intolerance in a world that says tolerance is a badge of honor? Yes. Is it hard to confront brothers and sisters when they are in sin or error? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. Because we will be pleasing Jesus when we do. We will be honoring Jesus when we do. We will be loving the other person when we do. We will reign with Jesus one day and Jesus will give us himself. It's worth it. Can I tell you a secret? I had intended to stop right there. But do you know what I think can sometimes happen when we hear this? I think we can sometimes leave this on such a corporate level that we miss one fundamental thing. And that is that while no church should tolerate what Jesus won't tolerate, dear friend, no Christian should tolerate in himself or in herself what Jesus won't tolerate. Are you tolerating sin in your own life? Anxiety, worry, pride, lust, envy, discontent, love of money, self-righteousness, unwholesome talk, secret drunkenness, gluttony, anger, selfishness in your marriage, harshness in your parenting, laziness at school or work, breaking the law or compromising ethics on the job, making an idol out of sport, out of your kids, out of your family, out of your job? Are you, are, are you tolerating apathy in your spiritual life? Are you tolerating the intolerable? You know it's sin. You know you're displeasing the Lord. You know what the Bible says. You know you should repent. You know you'd never want anyone else to find out about it, to know you that way, but somehow you've given yourself permission to keep on in it. Are you 
tolerating the intolerable. It's not too late. Jesus is a wonderful and merciful and patient Savior. Repent. Be restored. Get the help of some brother or sister to walk with you in being restored. But stop tolerating the intolerable. Stop. We bow our heads together and we're going to pray and then we will conclude our service. I wonder how you answer that question. Are you tolerating the intolerable? I wonder what it is that you are tolerating. I wonder if you might know that the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you through His Word. What are you going to do about it? Do not leave simply under conviction. Leave with the commitment to repent, to grow, to change. I'm going to give you just a couple of moments to reflect on what the Bible has said. And as you answer that question in your own heart, to pray and seek the Lord for His mercy. And then I'll pray for us and we'll be concluded. Our Father, we bow before you as our holy, holy, holy God. We know in our hearts that we do not deserve to be in your presence, that even when we come into your presence, we cry with the prophet, Woe is me. We know the depth of our guilt and sinfulness and we pray in response that we will know the depth of your mercy. We ask that you would make us as a church a people who would not tolerate the intolerable. 
as individual Christians in relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that we would not be people who tolerate in our own hearts, our own minds, our own mouths, our own lives, that which is intolerable to you. We pray that your Spirit would help us to answer that question, are we tolerating the intolerable? And that your Spirit will give us grace to repent, to look to the cross where we see our sin forgiven, to confess our sin, to be cleansed from unrighteousness, to walk in a new way. And would, would you, by your Spirit, strengthen us to seek help where sin has gotten a hold. We want these things because we know that in receiving them, we will bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us and was raised again. We are in awe of your mercy and grace toward us in him. We pray you will make all these things so for his glory and in his name. Amen.